If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 4. It'll take me a few minutes to get there, but uh, definitely that's where we're going to be focusing on our time, verses 1 through 11 this morning. We're going to be looking at the temptation, and uh, I want to just start by going over a couple of important things about how it's... uh, how we should approach studying the Bible or God's word. There is a tendency, I think, in us to try to find the most practical answer. We live in a day where practicality matters the most. How am I gonna use this in my life? And if, I'm not gonna, if I can't think of right now exactly how I'm going to use it, I don't think I wanna know this. Remember that? Like, that was probably last Friday in school, right? So how am I going to use this in life? And that's kind of how we are. And I kind of get that. I mean, I think it's good to be able to, to recognize that there should be a practicality in the things that we learn. Um, it's amazing how stuff that I thought I would never use and stuff that wasn't really important because I didn't use it the next day, it came back and was helpful years and years and years later. So I think it's good for us to realize um, that maybe we need to be more patient, okay? But there is in church time in uh, preaching of messages, let's get to the practical. There also is a real interest in life and in in church to to get to the simple. Uh, Don't don't complicate it, preacher boy. Uh, I really want the the most basic things. After all, God is simple and God makes everything simple. I I get what you're saying. I, I hope that we don't, you know, try to complicate things, but you do realize that we're dealing with an eternal being who will always be outside of our ability to fully understand or appreciate. So excuse me for just being a little bit like overwhelmed by that sometimes. And some of the thoughts that we have about God and about Jesus and about the Bible, sometimes to reduce it is to negate it, to, to, to lose the essence of what is being, being done. And so I want you to just think for a moment, because here's what we believe, and tell me if I'm wrong, literally, raise your hand, go, wait, whoa, 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 we don't believe that, but here's what we believe about Jesus, okay? Jesus is God and man. He's both of those. He's fully God. The church, it took them hundreds of years to study and to think and to reflect and to debate and to discuss this. Um, the church councils, uh, just after the time of, uh, of Jesus' departure, spent hundreds of years asking, how was Jesus able to pull this off? How did God do this? Now, I know what our answer would be. God can do anything. And then we stop thinking. And I want you to realize, like, that's 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 true and also irresponsible. By the way, the Bible doesn't just go, well, God can do anything you know all the time. Two times the Bible pulls the God can do anything card. You know what they are? One of them is virgins giving birth. The second one is rich people getting into heaven. So even when we do the God can do anything, which way is way more actually deep and complicated than we just throw that statement out there, um, it, it's, it's important for us to realize that when we, when we do that, we kind of lose sight of what really is going on because sure, God can do it. And nobody's even arguing that point, but do you realize that when we say Jesus is fully God, 100%, and fully man, 100%, that that's like 200% man, and two, or 200% being, I guess. So realize, like, how, how, does, how does 200% even work, right? It, it doesn't seem to fit. 
Let me, let me tell you how it gets even more interesting. We had a great discussion in our staff meeting on Monday, uh, last Monday, where we kind of go over what we're going to be learning this week. So here's what the Bible actually teaches, that God, in relation to temptation, that he cannot be tempted. God cannot be tempted by evil. The Bible teaches that. Um, nowhere in the Bible does God get tempted by evil and then give in to evil and act in an evil way. God never, ever, ever does that. Stop me if I'm wrong, okay? Stop me if I start preaching heresy, please, for the sake of my own soul. Stop me if I preach heresy. So the Bible teaches that God cannot be tempted and Jesus is God and Jesus was tempted. Huh, that's interesting. Now, we don't just go, well, then the Bible's wrong on this one or the Bible's wrong on that one. No, I mean, it just causes us to think like in a deeper way. Because I do believe that God cannot be tempted. I do believe that Jesus is God and I do believe that Jesus was tempted. The Bible teaches that. And you and I get to, the phrase I love to use is linger long. We linger long in that. Here's another thing that we know. We know that humanity, those who are human, descendants of Adam and Eve, how we deal with temptation is that we might be occasionally victorious over it. We don't give in all the time, but we do give in. Tell me if I'm wrong. We got one same page. Bible teaches that every single one of us, every single one of us, sin and fall, give in to temptation, and we sin, and then therefore we fall short of God's glorious standard. So if you're God, you cannot be tempted and you never give in to temptation. If you're human, you will. Are we ready for thought number two? Jesus was 100% human. And he was tempted. And he never sinned. Wow. See, that's why it's good to, to sit there and to reflect on it. So, you know, we're in our staff meeting and we're throwing around Ryan Vincent's showing everybody how smart he is. Drew is, uh, Moss is that introspective, um, how can I, you know, with angst kind of wrestle through these things. Scott's telling us we should meditate under a rock. So we've got all these, we've got all these different, all the, right, tell me I'm wrong. That's all I'm saying. Tell me I'm wrong. Um, as we're, as we're walking through this and we're, and we're wrestling through this, I mean, we had a rather deep conversation about how does this work? And then when we were done, guess what we did not have? We didn't have like this answer. We just had this moment of, wow. Wow. It's, uh, it's, it's profound, isn't it? And, and by the way, I, I do believe that since God cannot be fully understood or comprehended by the human mind, that what happens when we don't stop too quick and we linger long in deep thoughts about him and we don't just rush to practical things, what actually we can do is worship. What actually happens in that moment when I don't understand and still believe, where I don't have it totally figured out, but I still believe this truth about God or this truth about myself, it genuinely causes me to worship him. And, and so what I wanna do for my remaining time this morning is to talk about God and to worship. No, 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 band's not coming up. They had their time. But we're going to continue worshiping. As we think about this incredible encounter where Jesus, the God-man, is fully tempted and wins.
So why does the temptation of Jesus actually matter so much? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the story. John does not. So three of the four gospel presenters present this story. Mark's is the shortest. Matthew and Luke um, both have a different kind of a reason driving behind it, but they both share the ultimate reason is that they're trying to present Jesus Christ as truly the Son of God and the one who is victorious over sin and the devil. But why does the temptation matter so much? Like, like why, why, why do I make sure that why I actually teach it? Well, I, I need to, again, um, I have no problem confessing my shortcomings or my struggles, and I also have no problem kind of dragging every other preacher along with me in terms of the stakes that we have made. And, and, and I and, and we, on behalf of all preachers, have made this mistake And the first one is this, that when we ask the question, why is this so important? And therefore, how am I going to preach it? I look at this story of Jesus being victorious over uh, temptation and sin. And then we try to figure out how we can learn some kind of a technique or skill so that we can apply it so that we we can win too, right? It's the idea of Jesus is my example. Have you, have you heard those sermons? Hey, If you wrestle with temptation and then sin, I want you to know that you're not alone. Jesus did too. Let's study how he did it, and then we can do it too. We can be victorious as well. The primary way in which Jesus does this, and we'll see it in a second here. I promise I'll read the text. In a second, we'll see this. One of the primary things that he does is what he does what? He quotes scripture. I've actually preached. Hey, you need to quote scripture too. And if you quote scripture, then you too just like Jesus, will be victorious over sin for $29.95. Does it sound like I just almost sold you something? You, too, can become victorious over sin. So that essentially becomes like our teaching point. And the reason why Jesus did this is to give us an example. Now, what's interesting is, is that we don't do that all the time. Like, we don't always go, hey, let's find an example. We don't, we don't do that all the time. Um, I, I, I've not. I've done a lot of funerals. I've gone to a lot of funerals. I've never walked down front, casket there, and going, hey, by the way, um, I've seen Jesus do this, so are you ready? And I look at the name on the, you know, Jimmy, come forth. I don't do that. How many of you have done that? No, nobody. Huh. So maybe it might be good for us to realize that although Jesus does give us some pretty cool examples, like we just can't assume that because he does, we do. For example, I mean, how many of you, one of those don't raise your hand moments, how many of you have been tempted, have in in some way like used scripture and then failed? I have. What's wrong with scripture? (laughs) Nothing. There is something profoundly broken in you, me. So example, which by the way, hear me, don't don't get lost in this. I'm not saying it's not true that we should not use scripture when we're being tempted. I'm saying that's not why Matthew and Mark and Luke record this story and it is not the primary thing I want you to walk away from. Second thing that I have preached on and that I have heard others preach about is that what is happening in the temptation, the reason why it is so valuable and important is that you and I are able to get insight into what the kingdom is all about. 
that what the temptation is about is not just the use of scripture technique, but more of a way to think about the kingdom. And so Jesus is being tempted in uh, numerous ways to work the kingdom from a worldly perspective instead of a godly perspective. By the way, all that is true. That Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm going to be faithful in what God has called me to do. I'm not trying to find um, an alternative route. I'm not going to take the easy way to get to where God wants me to go. See, I, I get it. I, I, if you were to ask, if you were to put me in charge of Jesus' campaign of kingdom building, I mean, I'd hire a publicist. Um, we'd have great door prizes. I'd, I'd figure out really cool ways to highlight his message. I mean, I really would. I'd take out the difficult parts. We'd kind of emphasize the easy parts. And then anytime we get an opportunity to take a shortcut, we take it. Electricity, water, and Jim Johnson are great at finding the path of least resistance. But that's not what the kingdom is about. And when we look at the temptation, what you and I get to see are these, like Jesus becomes this sage, not just a moral example, but a sage arguing with the devil about the nature of the kingdom. And then what you and I gain from it is deep, deep insight. And then by that insight, then you and I can truly understand what the kingdom is all about. I preach that. It's kind of true, actually. It's just not what Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and no, not John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are trying to emphasize. You know what they want you to walk away from? I know this might just sound simple. Um, and again, simple is good. And then linger long and see how deep it goes. But what they want us to see is Jesus as victorious. They want us to see the victory that exists when Jesus overcomes sin. Because the truth is, is that if you and I can figure out by technique a way in which to never sin again, we still need Jesus, a perfect Jesus, a spotless lamb to die for us. You know that? So even, like your problem this morning is not that sometime this afternoon or tomorrow or the next day or the day after that or the day after that or whenever. The problem isn't that in one of those moments you're going to make a mistake and God's going to be mad at you. That is not your problem. Your problem and my problem is that without a perfect sacrifice, you, you and I have no way of finding peace with God. And what Matthew, Mark, and Luke want us to see is that Jesus Christ, like we sang, gained the victory for us and then gave it to us. So you and I have victory as gift. That's why we talk about grace and gift, same word. You and I have victory by gift. And too often, what preachers, what we sell the victory for is a cool technique. Read scripture, you'll be fine. That's not the way it's intended. Get these insights into how God's kingdom works and you'll be fine. No. Because as true as those things are, they are not the deepest truth. And the deepest truth, the, more profound, the most profound truth, is that Jesus was victorious over sin. Therefore, his death accomplished what your efforts and my efforts and your insight and my insight, your example and my example can never do. It made peace with God. So the text looks like this. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 
Then Jesus was led up. That's it's kind of an interesting word. The words that we have kind of that jump out on the screen are, are words that have some significance. Um, the word led up, first of all, you're going to see who's doing it. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is leading Jesus into the desert at this moment. And by the way, I, I would strongly recommend that as you think about this story, um, it very much, it's a real story, just like its counterpart in the Old Testament is very much a real story, and it actually resembles a lot of Moses and the Israelites coming out of Egypt 40 years in the wilderness being tested and tried, and they fail and fail and fail. And here we have Jesus being led up. Mark actually uses a different term. He actually uses a word that if, if you were to really look at it and, and kind of look at how it's sometimes used, it means to be thrown out. Mark, in sometimes his brevity, likes to, uh, likes to really kind of magnify what's happening there. By the way, that's not the reluctance of Jesus on this, but it is the Spirit of God who is the one that leads Jesus into, this, into, the, into the wilderness or to the desert to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, here's the obvious statement, he was hungry. Now, we should also see that from this text, what we don't get is that Jesus was being tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. But it's during this time that Jesus withdraws from everything, wilderness, and then from food, probably not, obviously not water, um, but from food, he is profoundly hungry, and what we might think is that to remove those things, to, to live in this, this, this position of denial would make us vulnerable or susceptible to sin and to temptation. But I, I think what actually we see here is that it makes us stronger. Verse 3, and then the tempter, because the devil or Satan, which just means accuser, is a liar, a deceiver. He doesn't have, and this is important for you to remember, that whenever you think about the devil, he's not everywhere. He's not God, so he's not everywhere. He doesn't know everything. But what he does know, he distorts. And what he does say, he lies. And when he does speak, he accuses, particularly God's people. And here we're going to see God's son. He is tempting him. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. That, that phrase, by the way, if you are, um, there's a, a lot of interesting things about that. So I know it's a simple statement, but many times in the Bible when that phrase is actually used, the if part, it, it most likely could mean since. That I, I would argue from the context, what Satan is doing here is, is not trying to cast doubt into Jesus's mind. The if is not, and I don't think you are, but if you are, it's, hey, if you are, and I think you are, if you are, and therefore, since you are, what I want you to do, since you are, is I want you to act a particular way, and the temptation that Jesus is dealing with here is, is am I going to follow God's plan and God's purpose for my life? that will lead to a cross and a sinless life, therefore a perfect death, therefore bringing perfect victory and peace for all of the people that God has called. Am I going to do that? Or am I going to listen to the tempter, to the liar? If you are the son of God, command these stones, and I know you're hungry, to become loaves of bread. And what's wrong with that? And Jesus, in his perfect moment, he does use scripture, but it is written, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy. 
the people of God were, were led through the wilderness for 40 years. And what was really going to be their temptation was, would you trust God to be the one to provide on his terms and for his purposes and not you? You, you do know, right, that like, there's nothing wrong with being hungry and eating <laughs> at all. There's nothing wrong at all with being thirsty and drinking. There's nothing wrong at all to be lonely and to find some friends, to fall in love and to get married, to get married and to enjoy intimacy. Like none of these things by themselves are wrong in any way. In fact, they have been given to, by God to us as gift. And we should be grateful for them. The Apostle Paul says everything that has been given comes from God and therefore should be received with thanksgiving. Nothing wrong. How many of you like good food? Right? Yeah? Nothing wrong with it at all. God's not in heaven going, ugh. I gave them amazing taste buds and really cool things to eat, but then they found out they liked it. No. You know, you, know, you know the problem is that when you and I begin to take those things that we like and really like them, when we really could take our time and our attention and our efforts and, and learn to like different things, I think one of the values actually of fasting or withdrawing from and with removing some of these things is that you realize, wow, like I, I don't need to have that all the time. Sure, I would love to have five pizzas for lunch. I don't know if I need five pizzas for lunch. Like, actually, um, somebody told me this years ago, and it really is true, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. That just makes more sense when you're kind of on the skinny side and you're really enjoying it, or you're on the I can't live at this weight for one more minute side. But when you're at the restaurant, it is tough to believe that, right? No, no, no. It's, it's interesting. I've had people come up and say to me things like this. Man, I just love a good steak. I've had people, right, right now, we are a nation obsessed with bacon. Like obsessed with bacon. Like obsessed with bacon, right? Man, there's nothing, I mean, right? All the bacon jokes, nothing as good as bacon, blah, blah. I mean, just bacon, bacon, bacon. I mean, I love bacon, right? I, I have I've yet to have someone really come up to me and go, you know what I really like? I just love a good Bible verse. There's nothing like a good Bible verse. I know people who love coffee. I know people who love steak. I know love people who love bacon. I love people who love Italian food and Chinese. I mean, I do. They talk about it all the time. We, we, we don't seem to talk about God's word in the same way at all. I know what you're thinking. Dude, relax. It, that... I, I hear you, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with the jokes and I'm, I get the context, but I just wanna ask you, like, have you ever craved God's word like you crave a good steak, like a good meal? Have you, do, you even know, do you even know what the feeling is like inside to want it that much or that bad? And I think if we were to take a poll, most of us would go, no. Like, I know how to want to want it, kind of like I want to be skinny, but I don't really want to go through the hard work of getting there. And what Jesus says is, I know I can turn these stones into bread, but that's really not the point of my power. 
That's really not the point. I mean, sure, he's quoting scripture, but not to, aha, I got you, devil. <laughs> like, Jesus isn't trying to use scripture as a trick. He is drawing on it to make sense to his life. Men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse five, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Then he said to him, if you are, I believe really a good way to translate it is, since you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he, is, he, is, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. The devil now quotes, by the way, so this is why just quoting scripture generically is never the point. The devil used Psalm 91 to go, hey, here you go, what about this? So you can use the scripture in the wrong way. The devil's a great example of that. Even in your midst of temptation, you can use the scripture in the wrong way. So it's more than just scripture. He tells them, just throw yourself, I get this. I, I mean, if I was trying to figure out a way, as I said before, I mean, Jesus' ministry would be far more spectacular. We'd have a really cool Twitter handle. I mean, we would be just all, we, that's how we would handle it. And, um, and think about this. I mean, all through Jesus' ministry, not that he doesn't do miracles, but whenever there's like this miracle hurrah, Jesus goes, yeah, we're leaving. We're, we're gonna go to another place. Come on, come over here. But Jesus, have you seen the crowds? Yeah, I know. Crowds in, in Matthew's gospel are um, sometimes just generic crowds, and sometimes it's actually uh, a sign or a depiction of just people who are easily pleased, who are just here for the free food. And so Jesus isn't here to do a spectacle. Oh, but can you imagine if you, and a lot of us want Jesus to do this in our own lives. That's what I find funny, is that, and painfully so, is that even when I want God to do stuff, oh, if you just do this thing, it'll be so awesome. I'm like, man, I sound like the devil. Like, I sound like Satan right now when I'm asking for these things. I just want you to do this amazing thing. And Jesus says to him, again, it is written, verse seven, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I, I know, Jesus is an argument. I know I can jump off this, and I know that an angel will come and grab me. I know that. Well, show me. Yeah, no. I, I'm not gonna put God to the test. See, what Israel got wrong and what Jesus is getting right, what Israel got wrong is not saying, we want food, please. But going, when are you gonna give us food? We hate it that we're hungry. We hate the food that you gave us. Like, why won't you love us? And why won't you, it's the complaining and it's the arguing and it's the, have you ever, okay, either you're a parent saying this to a kid or you're a kid who's heard this from a parent it's how you asked that's the problem, sweetheart. That's Israel's problem. It's how you asked. Wow. What Jesus does in this moment, he says, I'm not going to put God to the test. He will be faithful. But you do realize, as Melissa pointed out, that in God being faithful, we could still be faithless in asking. And Jesus is now at that moment and I know you need a good example, which by the way, one will come, but more than that, I'm just, I'm kind of rereading the story going, oh, don't blow this. Like my soul is dependent upon this. Imagine if we read the story and we didn't know, and if Jesus ever got one of these wrong, all of us are going to hell for eternity. You ever read the story like that? He gets this wrong, we burn. 
And Jesus gets it right. Verse eight, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, not gonna quote scripture here, all of these I will give you. Remember, Satan is a deceiving, lying dog. All of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, back to Deuteronomy, you shall worship the Lord your God and only shall you serve him. That's what it ultimately comes down to. And the devil's response is he left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. They were caring for him. No, we, we, we see Jesus going through the temptation and what you and I now see is an example, sure, I'm not saying we shouldn't, um, some deep insights as to what the kingdom is gonna be like. Yeah, grateful, and yes, Jesus was victorious. And now his kingdom is going to be established. And we, we now know that what Jesus is able to do in those moments, in that, in that moment of great temptation, is be victorious over sin. Therefore, what we are going to see is something that is radically different than, than everybody else. What we have is more than example and more than insight. What we actually have is Lord. And he is going to establish his kingdom. And even from this text, we can see some profound truths about this kingdom that he is about to establish. That he has proven this victory, and he will continue throughout his entire ministry to prove victory over temptation and sin. But we have some profound insights as to what this kingdom is going to look like. The first thing that we see about Jesus being tempted and how he handles it and how he did it is that obviously the kingdom of God is not built on shortcuts. It's kind of interesting that what we see in Jesus' life is not an easy road. Not only does he not take it here, he never takes it here. Jesus at some level, I believe, understands, because he's about to preach, that I will ultimately die on a cross. And when the cross is what you're ultimately going for, shortcuts are never really an option. Like that wouldn't even make sense. Now, now by the way, I, I want you to hear this because this is the road that you and I, those of us who confess to be followers of Jesus Christ, like we are now following in this. And there are no shortcuts. That's why Jesus said to the disciples on the night that he was betrayed as he is in the garden, he says this about temptation. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation because the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And what he's talking about, and the road is hard and shortcuts are a temptation. Therefore, what I want you to see is the fullness of what it looks like to live in a world that is diametrically opposed to God, that is sending temptations, and that is sending sin and evil all around us, that this is what is coming, and there are no shortcuts for Jesus, and there are no shortcuts for us. And what do we do? We watch and we pray. I love that because it reminds me that my salvation is not up to me. What do I need to do? Try harder next time you're tempted. How many of you have done the try harder thing? Anybody else? That cure it for you? Like, is that your problem? The try harder? It's not the problem, is it? I love where Jesus keeps pointing us back to. Watch and pray. Like, watch and pray. 
Like, lean on God. Think about him. Think of the victory that we have in Jesus. I really think that we would fundamentally approach temptation and sin in a different way if we began to look at what Jesus is and what he has accomplished instead of me just trying to not have bad thoughts and do bad things. There's no shortcuts in this kingdom. And we will be eternally dependent on God and who he is. We also see that, yes, God's kingdom is built on God's word. His kingdom is built on his word. Essentially, that it is the faithfulness of God that sustains us all the way through. It is his faithfulness to his word. See, the word is not, like the phrase abracadabra has kind of in it that if we just had this magical word, then we could unlock a mystery. And I even know Christian people that treat God's word far more like abracadabra than they do. God has said these things, and therefore these things are true because he is true. You've heard me say it. I will say it until I am dead. I do not believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of God who answers my prayers. And there's a fundamental difference. I've read articles and magazines about the power of prayer because then we come into the encounter and we have this positive spirit and we can actually become healthier and richer and it's the power of positive thinking. And I'm going, oh yeah, no, that's not, I don't believe in any of that stuff. Like, sure, I mean, yeah, I guess being positive, I could sell a little few more gadgets and, and maybe I could, like, by being happier, have a better health. But that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to get more stuff and to live as long as I can. Like, I believe one day I'll see God and it's not how healthy I've lived or how much stuff I have, but how have I dealt with him? And so I do not believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of God who answers prayer. So I do not believe in the power of scripture. Hear what I'm saying? I believe in the power of God who answers that scripture. The devil used scripture. Hey, jump off. And Jesus, let me give you something bigger than that. Because it's not the scripture. I don't love the Bible. I love the God of the Bible, and that has taught me to love the Bible. Do you understand the difference? And the Bible is the foundation. The kingdom is built on God's word. Paul says it this way. There's no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to all of man. God is faithful. That's his point. God, we're wanting a technique. God is faithful, he says, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. I believe that. And with that temptation will also provide the way of escape that you will be able to endure it. I believe that. And I fail at it way too many times. Way too many times. I know that God won't give me a temptation that I can't overcome. I know that God will do all of these things. How many of you know that and still fail? Anybody? And that's why I love where Melissa went. Because just think of that statement. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted. I love this. He will help you endure it. This is what I want you to see. One of two options in your life. You will have temptation. You will overcome it. To God be the glory. Yay, I'm proud of you. Number two, you will face that temptation and you will fail. Like, then what? What does the text say? Read it. What does it say? God is faithful. Like, what happens when I don't, Paul? 
oh, well, let, me, let, me, let me tell you about God's faithfulness. It's not just giving you a way out. Praise be his name that we can be victorious over temptation and sin. Greater praise be the name of God that when I don't, because Jesus did, I have peace. Do you see how that fits? That's what it means. The kingdom is built on the word of God, the faithfulness to his word. And his word in part is not just, hey, I will help you out of this. It's um, not only will I help you out of the temptation, but you're not always gonna get that right and I'm still God. Like I'm not going to give up on you. And by the way, not because you're cute and not because you're special and you can do anything you want if you just put your mind to it but because God has a plan and nothing will stop his plan. God is faithful. And he will give you a way to overcome sin and temptation. Use scripture, recognize the deep implications of what the kingdom is all about. And when you succeed, give praise to his name. And when you fail, give praise to his name. Because Jesus never failed. This is why the kingdom is not built on examples and the kingdom is not built even on the word of God. The kingdom is built on Jesus, the God-man. That's why we worship and that's why we wonder. That's why I sit here and I don't fully understand and I don't think a thousand or a million years of eternity will even ever fully solve that for me. I will always be limited in my understanding. God will always be above it and I'll say to God, I believe this, I'll say to God, so Jesus was fully you, yes, and Jesus was fully me, yes, how? And God, I think, will look at me and go, because nothing's impossible for me. But God, I always made fun of people when they said that. Well, try making fun of me. No way, I'm not making fun of you. I don't understand how. And God's not even saying, figure out how. God's saying, appreciate how. Respond to how. We're not here as a church to try to help you become better people and stop doing bad things. You may or may not have a porn problem. You may or may not have an addiction. You may or may not be a nice person. You may or may not have self-control. You may or may not be divorced. You may or may not, I have no idea, okay? All of those things is part of us. What we are as a church is a group of people committed to follow Jesus no matter what and be obedient to him no matter what to submit to his plan and his purposes no matter what. And along the way, because of who God is, I genuinely believe we'll become more like Jesus. And that's what matters the most. Not me, unless God has used me, but God has spoken today. God has revealed in Matthew chapter four, verses one through 11, a truth about who he is. Last week, we spent some time thinking about what it actually means to recognize that God is telling you something about himself. He is revealing something about who you are, and he wants you to change your mind about it. He wants to take you and have you rethink him, rethink life, rethink your relationship with him, rethink your current standing with him, and God wants you to think about that. And God wants you to respond to it. God, God wants you to trust him and to believe in him and not so that you can prove victorious and then God will owe you. No, but that you can be victorious and experience this new life in him. 
So what I want to do right now is to just stop and be quiet for a moment. I can be quiet for a moment. And I want you to think about what God has revealed about him and how you need to think rightly about it. And then I want you to begin that thinking process about, so how do I change how I either think about him or act in response to him? What has God revealed about himself? And what does God want you to do? Think about that for a moment.